page 932. Acts 23, beginning in verse 12, and going to the end of the chapter. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they're going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen, and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and I was about to be killed, and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there was a plot, would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. This week, I, I, was, I had to make several trips down towards Philadelphia to visit my mother and drop off Grace for various things. And while I was down there at one point, my, my mom made me watch a, a clip of the Andy Griffith show that she's been laughing about. It's an episode she says she doesn't like. It's really not that funny. But the first couple minutes of it are, are kind of classic. It's, it's got Andy and his deputy, Barney, sitting in the police car, uh, waiting to go to lunch. And they're gossiping about everybody in the town. Uh, even as Andy smiles and waves, hi, Mrs., you know, whatever, and then, like, they, you know, make these comments about them and this kind of thing. And my favorite line of all is when Barney remarks that the one lady, Mrs. So-and-so, is uglier uglier than homemade soap, he says. (laughs) And my mom and I were in hysterics. It's like, what does that even mean? You know, it's it's just kind of funny. It's a great insult, even if you've never seen homemade soap, which I have, okay? 
Georgia, a number of years ago, tried making tallow soap. <sighs> Uh, it smelled horrible, it looked bad, it didn't work very well, and plus it was more expensive and dangerous than just buying soap. So here was Georgia, pregnant, I believe, she was always pregnant, right? Uh, buying, she's like at Home Depot buying pure lye crystals to play with, and the guy at Home Depot thinks she's nuts, I think he was probably right. So it looks awful, it's brown, it's gushy looking, and it comes out in odd shapes, and it doesn't smell that good, so I, I don't recommend homemade soap except as an insult. <laughs> well, last week's passage, I don't know if you'll recall, I didn't read it again today because it was a long enough chunk, but uh, there was another great insult, and I didn't dwell on it too long at the time, but when I read today's passage, it kept ringing in my ear, and if you'll recall, it was Paul who called the high priest, Ananias, a whitewashed wall. And he was very emphatic about this, right? Uh, and then he kind of halfway took it back because the guy said, hey, he's the high priest. What are you talking about? And, but honestly, it didn't sound like the worst insult in the world when you're breezing by it. Like, I can think of a few harsher words to say. Uh, and, and admittedly, Paul did say God would strike him, so that was also kind of part of it. But he didn't use any coarse language, really, right? He didn't say Ananias was ugly or that his mama was fat or anything like that, right? All he really did was he called him a whitewashed wall. Now... I've had experience with whitewashed walls as well. Uh, it seems to me like most of the Allentown homes that I've, I've visited and been to, I've seen that there's a lot of concrete walls in the basement. I don't know if that's a heritage of the concrete industry around here, but it's actually very nice. In Philadelphia, in the house I grew up in and in the previous house that we, we owned when we were living down there, we had stone walls in the basement. Uh, and that sounds really nice, but somehow when they built these houses, they had mixed a, a sort of mortar uh, that in incorporated some of the neighboring soil and loam and things that were around the houses, and they kind of put that in between. But what you find is that 100 years later, this mortar is returning to its dirt form. And uh, what that means is that almost every house in Philly that I know of has these crumbling walls. And the only thing you can do to hide that, especially if you're trying to sell the place, is you can make a whitewash paste, like a plaster almost, and you mask it, okay? And we lived with this for years, uh, and the walls would grow these fuzzy little crystals and things, and sometimes mold if it was moist enough in your basement, and over time it would fall out in, in chunks. And if you patched it with a veneer of concrete, that would look really nice for a little while, but it had nothing to cling to but the dirt, and so eventually it would just come out in bigger chunks now, right? And if you painted it, I made the mistake of this, I found that oil paints would never dry, and latex paints grew pink and green mold over time. Uh, so I tried everything because as a teenager, you know, I, we have one corner of the basement. I was going to turn this into my guy's hangout kind of thing, right, in, in, the, in the basement. But in our last house for years, the front of the basement was, was covered, the whole floor, in this dirt and debris that would come out of the walls. And we had a cat, one of these devil creatures, who used to pee on it because he thought it was a litter box. That was gross, and it was easier to get rid of the cat than to fix the wall problem. So hello, kitty, bye-bye, kitty. Easy come, easy go. Now, my point in saying all this is, is, is that whitewashing a wall only covers up serious imperfections, right? Uh, to really fix it would require a lot of money, uh, complete deconstruction, hauling tons of dirt out, mixing tons of concrete, metal, metal screening, possibly rebar in some situations, lots of muscle, and possibly heavy equipment. 
Or you can be fancy and hide it behind drywall. I did a little bit of that in my last house. But whitewashing, honestly, was easier. That's what my father always did. It doesn't really address the underlying issue, but it was quicker. So when Paul used that insult, I I think it was meant to point out the rot behind the paint, right? Uh, And I've lived in lots of these old homes. The oldest home I ever lived in was in Belfont, PA. I had two buddies who worked in construction. They came over. They told me that the paint in that building was, was, you know, structural. It was actually holding it together, and I don't think they were wrong. But the point is that paint is not a substitute for solid construction, any more than wearing clean clothes is a substitute for a shower or a smile painted on a clown makes him happy, right? At Wawa, near Philly, I, I saw they had signs up. Everybody's wearing masks again in there. And said, behind my mask is a smile. I'm like, yeah, right, okay, that's, yeah, I'll buy that. There's a reason you can hide behind that. And likewise, external holiness is not always a sign of spiritual health. So Paul's insult last week was an echo of something that Jesus had said years earlier because Jesus had called the scribes and the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. For much the same reasons. He said that they looked clean, but they were full of all uncleanness. It's a time-tested insult, apparently, and it stings because it's true. Now, why do I bring this all up again this week? I I remind us of these words because they were not only true of the high priest. I think Paul could have easily said this about most of his countrymen. And we see that borne out today in this passage, because the most passionate, most outwardly pious guys in this passage are not the good guys. And this becomes clear right away. Now you have to remember, this comes right after Jesus has visited with Paul in the prison and told him, everything's going to be all right, I'm going to get you to Rome. And then that very following morning, when it was day, The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Now I want to talk a little bit about this conspiracy, this plot. Conspiracy theories are are generally less than plausible, if not downright crazy, most of the time. Uh, I used to like listening to Michael Medved's radio show because every time he had a full moon, there was a full moon, he would do conspiracy day. And he would only take calls from people sharing their own unique conspiracies. And it's, a, it's sad that, you know, he had no trouble filling these hours, right? Um, and you would hear some real whoppers. Uh, basically, the show would consist of him debunking most of these stories or explaining just how implausible they really were. But the obvious reason why most conspiracy theories fell apart is that it would require so many people to be in on it. And someone, somewhere, is going to be a weak link. Conspiracies, they require good planning, some expertise, commitment, and cooperation. That's why I don't buy into really any government conspiracies hardly because I've seen the government in action, all right? This is not Ocean's Eleven caliber stuff, all right? So from that perspective, this conspiracy to kill Paul already looks weak on some points because there's too many people involved and there's more emotion than logic happening here. However, in their favor they have going that they have a pretty reasonable goal and target. They're not trying to overthrow Rome here. They're trying to kill Paul, which is a simpler thing. It's just one guy. It should be pretty doable. And also, they have most of Jerusalem in their corner. In other words, if this conspiracy succeeds, these guys are unlikely to face blowback from their neighbors. Paul is unpopular in Jerusalem, so killing him would be popular. And Rome might not retaliate because, honestly, that would be too costly. So while they could be killed... You know, some these guys could, part of the plot here, they could be killed during the ambush. That's a real risk. 
But if they get away with it and they're quick, you know, killing Paul, it's bold, but it's not something that's going to necessarily have long-term consequences for all of them. So 40-plus guys have vowed to do this. It's a lot of people. Uh, This is enough of a posse to get the job done. And they are so committed to this goal that they have sworn to forego all food. They're fasting. And drink, too, right? They're not going to have anything until the deed is done. This means they are not only serious about killing Paul, they are serious about doing it quickly. Because most people don't swear off food and drink for an indefinite period of time. If there's no end point. I'm not fond of fasting myself. I don't know about you. I can fast truly for maybe about a day, and then I get angry and irrational and panicky and unfocused. Uh, And this is the sort of plot that will not work if these guys are angry, irrational, panicky, and unfocused, right? So they have every intention of doing the job today. Go out, kill Paul, be back in time for brunch with the guys. Should be a piece of cake. But that only works if they get an assist from the Sanhedrin. So... They go to them first. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. All right, so summarizing the conspiracy. Elders will invite Paul back to the council, and an accident will happen along the way. Now, that sounds pretty bad, but once again, these guys, I think, really represent the heart of Jerusalem at this point. They're unique not because they hate Paul. Everybody hates Paul. We've established that. They're unique because they're willing to take action. They're doing this out of a sense of heroism, like any vigilante does. The system isn't bringing them justice, so they're doing what they got to do. These guys, in many respects, are the outwardly righteous. They are committed to fasting. They take their vows seriously. They seek the blessing of their religious leaders. On the outside, these guys are the pious, zealous, and dedicated ones. They love their country. They are religious. They are patriots. They are traditionalists. They even have the blessings of their pastors. This conspiracy is the only kind of conspiracy that might work because everybody would be complicit. Now, Georgia did ask the very obvious question, did these guys all end up starving to death because, you know, spoiler alert, the thing didn't work out? Story doesn't say. I'm kind of assuming that it's unlikely. Uh, They probably broke down and ate at some point. But I think they were serious at the time they made the vow. But the reason this plot breaks down is not because of some grand miracle. Uh, You know, 20 years ago, when Peter escaped from this very prison, it was because an angel showed up and just let him right outside the doors, right, right you know, after midnight. God doesn't often work in that way. He tends to use ordinary means to help his people, and that's what happens here. It says, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Again, this conspiracy is too big. You know, it's Ben Franklin that said that three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. You know, <laughs> there's truth to that. So somehow... Paul's uh, nephew hears about this. Now, it's interesting because we had no idea that Paul had any living family, right? Uh, And this nephew just gets dropped in here with no explanation. We don't get the name of him or of Paul's sister. Apparently, Paul's got a sister. You know, you think you know a guy, but apparently not. We, We don't even know if this kid is actually a Christian or not, but he wants to protect his uncle Paul from an underhanded scheme. And it's also interesting, the fact that Paul's nephew, who remains nameless, was even allowed into the barracks is kind of shocking. That's not a place where you would expect locals could just cavalierly walk in the door like, hey guys, what's happening, right? It's possible 
that this kid knew people in high places, or maybe the Tribune gave Paul special privileges, but I I did see in in my limited research that at least at certain times in Roman history, it was common for the prisoners to basically be denied basic necessities because the understanding was, well, the family ought to be coming and taking care of that. That shouldn't be on our dime. So it could be uh, that, you know, if he's Paul's nephew, he might be the only guy in town who has the right of visitation, depending on what the rules were. Hard to be sure. But perhaps most interesting is the fact that this nephew did hear about this plot. We don't know how he heard, but once again, secrets are hard to keep, and that's why conspiracies generally fail. In any event, he runs to Uncle Paul to warn him. What comes next is a little more surprising, I think. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Kid's got a lot of details for, uh, you know, just a rumor on the street. But every step of that process seems increasingly unlikely. The, The fact that the centurion would answer Paul when he calls for him, like, okay, maybe that would happen. But then, without even hearing the story... Without asking any questions, the centurion just says, okay, and walks this kid to the main office to deliver a mysterious message to his boss. That sounds almost stupid. And then the tribune almost affectionately just takes the nephew aside to give him privacy. Here, tell me what happened. I mean, that sounds risky. You don't know what this kid's capable of. And moreover, he listens. He believes what the kid has to say. None of that is what you would expect of a professional Roman military outfit, which says to me that God has softened this tribune and all the other soldiers that are around Paul. Paul's calm demeanor has had an effect. So he sends Paul's nephew home. He tells him to keep quiet, and that's partly to keep him safe, but also to maintain the element of surprise, because already the wheels are turning, and this tribune is hatching his own counterplot, and he doesn't waste any time in executing it. It says, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Well, the whole situation is kind of flipped here, right? Uh, Paul just went from being a sitting duck at the mercy of Jewish conspiracies to riding in style to Caesarea escorted by nearly 500 of his closest friends. Infantry, cavalry, a whole mess of troops, probably the majority of the garrison, with Paul in the middle, hands unbound, riding his own horse, actually horses, it says mounts, mounts plural, meaning he has a backup horse in case the first one gets tired or breaks a leg. This is not a prison escort, this is a parade. This is Prince Ali coming into Agrabah while the genie sings a catchy tune. That's what this is. This is going to be more like the procession of a conquering general than Paul the prisoner. It's an unbelievable scene he's setting up. 
And I think the Tribune does this for spite, at least partly. You get the impression that this Tribune, I mean, we soon learn his, his name is Claudius, has decided he kind of likes Paul and he kind of doesn't like these local people. Or at the very least, he can't make sense of why everyone else seems to hate him. And so, you know, he's darned if he's going to let 40-some Jewish zealots make a fool of him. So he finally decides what to do with Paul. After all this indecision up till now, he's going to send him to the governor and get the focus of the rage out of his jurisdiction and back to the provincial capital in Caesarea. He sends Paul away, but not by releasing him because he might get killed. No, he sends him with half the garrison on a night's march going north. And he sends Paul with a hall pass, a note addressed to the governor. It says he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused of questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. A couple thoughts in response to this letter. One being that Claudius does a nice job of embellishing his story, doesn't he? <laughs> I rescued this poor soul from some rowdy Jews. Slightly revisionist. Because I knew he was a citizen, which he clearly did not. He also conveniently skips the details about the near riot and the Sanhedrin that he created by bringing him down there. But overall, this is a concise letter that states Claudius's concerns and position here, namely that the Jews are not being rational about this guy. And more importantly, Claudius says, I think he's innocent. That's not small. He says not only does he not deserve death, he doesn't even deserve jail time. Now, Claudius boldly gives that opinion to a political superior that Paul really should be released. Better to do that in Caesarea than Jerusalem. They'll kill him here. I'm sending the Jews to explain their beef, but I don't think they really have one. It's a bold letter and a very friendly letter for Paul. Not that Paul knew that. Paul didn't have access to this letter. It's actually an interesting historical question to ask. How on earth did we come to be in possession of the details of this letter? Because Paul never saw it. It's not meant for public reading, right? So only Claudius and Felix and the centurion who was carrying it, you would think, should have seen it at all. Which makes one wonder who leaked the details to Luke years later. And I don't think it's unreasonable to speculate that Luke got the details possibly from Claudius himself. Perhaps Claudius was more persuaded by Paul's testimony than Paul's countrymen were. Maybe arresting Paul was what saved him. I mean, that's what happened to the Philippian jailer, if you recall. You know, we, we learned that Claudius was, was a, a Roman citizen, and he said that he had bought it, but citizenship was not up for auction in Rome. So when Claudius Lysias says he bought his citizenship, it more likely means that he essentially bribed somebody in the royal court who put in a good word from him with the emperor who could confer citizenship on people. Now, this would make sense, because if the emperor, the former emperor at this point, Claudius, had granted this guy citizenship, it would be customary for you to take the name of your patron. So, could be. But maybe he was intrigued, Claudius Lysias, by Paul's story of citizenship, 
and a citizenship that was not of this world, that didn't require payment, and it wasn't something you got by birthright, and it came with more rights and more privileges than anything Rome could offer. We can't say that with certainty, but I think it would make some sense. But in the end, Paul does make it safely to Caesarea. says, So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him in the night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, it's about a 24-hour walk on foot from Jerusalem to Caesarea. So the foot soldiers turn around in the village of Antipatris. That's about halfway. I'm sure this parade created quite a stir in that town. Kind of wish we could see the faces on the townsfolk. You got almost 500 troops, but not the tribune. Just some Jewish guy riding in the middle like a king. The cavalry continue on with Paul to Caesarea, and I'm sure that Felix, the governor, was equally surprised to see an entire cavalry unit escorting one lowly prisoner. They hand him a letter, and it doesn't really clear things up much, does it? Is Paul a prisoner? Or is he a guest? Someone seeking asylum? Is he a citizenship who needs protection? He's not bound. He's not shackled. He's not trying to get away. He's riding in style. He's got at least two horses, right? Who is this guy? What's the deal? Nothing's clear at all about this situation if you're Felix. And the best Felix can come up with is like, uh, so where are you from? Which you would think was already on file somewhere. And he's like, okay, Cilicia, huh? All right, I'll see you in a day or two. And he sends him to his room. Not in the prison. He puts him in the praetorium. This is the governor's residence. He gives him a room in his own house. And he puts him under guard, but it's kind of ambiguous, isn't it? Whether the troops are there to keep him in or to keep others out. I don't think anyone here knows what's going on. The whole scene is senseless. A prisoner just walked into the capital of the, of the, the district with an escort usually reserved for dignitaries... He's got a sweet ride and a letter of recommendation from the chief of police in Jerusalem. It's weird. I was not in town this week when, when President Biden visited McCungie. I have seen a presidential motorcade just once. Uh, it was in downtown Philadelphia. I, went to, I got free tickets to go hear George W. Bush speak on something down at the Kimmel Center. It was a very dull topic, and I couldn't remember a thing that they talked about. But watching the president leave was really cool <laughs> um, because the president travels in style it, you would never mistake him for an average citizen they don't do this for everybody you have dozens of cops on motorcycles and cruisers you've got secret service agents in black suits meandering all through the crowd looking at everyone like you're a little bit suspicious right they don't really make eye contact either they're creepy uh, you had plain clothes agents pretending to be normal citizens but you saw the little earpiece anyway uh, you had snipers on the roof of almost every building in downtown Philadelphia looking down at us. And three limousines just to throw you off the scent, if you were a terrorist. So you had to kind of squint to see which one had Bush actually waving at you from the window. A presidential motorcade is awe-inspiring if you see it. You know that this guy's important because of how he travels. Dozens of cops and agents and vehicles with the sole purpose of protecting one man. 
And that's Paul in this scene. He walks into Caesarea like a boss. He looks like someone important in spite of the dirty clothes and the long hair. And it would be very hard to tell that he was a prisoner at this point. He looks more like a hero or a politician. So recapping, Paul went from sitting in a prison rejected by everyone to being a target of an assassination plot to being escorted like a king to see the Roman governor, a wild reversal of fortune. And it all happened in a course of about 24 hours. So who ultimately won the Battle of Jerusalem? I mean, yeah, Paul is still incarcerated. On paper, he's still kind of in trouble. But looked at from another perspective, he's being treated like royalty. And the schemers, if they kept their vow, are pretty hungry right now. God truly does oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Paul couldn't be much more humble than we found him at the end of last week, despairing in a prison cell, but Jesus was in his corner and he lifted Paul up in a big way. Now, I started off this whole thing by talking about great insult, right? Uh, how Paul had called the high priest a whitewashed wall. But the danger of false righteousness is not limited to the high priest. All the Jews in Jerusalem thought they were on the side of righteousness. They were protecting the nation. They're defending their heritage and their homeland. And in a sense, they were very pious, pious people. These guys who vowed to kill Paul are zealous for their faith. They are zealous for their nation, for their national identity. They have what Paul might call a form of godliness, but denying its power. If Paul's enemies really believed in God's power, they wouldn't have to take matters into their own hands, would they? There would be no rash vows or suicide pacts or conspiracies, no violent retaliations. They wouldn't be risking their necks doing deceptive things to uphold God's honor. They would know that even the heart of the king is in God's hands, and they wouldn't be sitting there now, hungry, wondering how Paul got away this easy and why Rome is suddenly protecting him. Whitewashed religion is an external holiness that doesn't really believe God. They don't trust him to do the right thing. They don't believe that he will execute justice in his own time, or maybe they really don't believe he is just at all. Whitewashed religion falls into the trap of believing that you are holier than God himself, that you have higher standards than he does. It's blasphemous. And Jesus and Paul say this is like whitewashing the outside while the inside is as ugly as homemade soap. And it's sad to see that the people of Jerusalem, God's city, have been brought so low. George and I were talking this week about how this story reminds us of the book of Esther because both are about conspiracies. Esther hears about a plot from her uncle, Mordecai. Paul hears about the plot from his nephew, in both cases, God ultimately uses a godless ruler to protect his people. In the book of Esther, God used the Persian king. Here he uses Rome. But there's one startling difference. In Esther, the Jews were God's people under his special protection. But here, Paul represents God's people, and the people of Jerusalem have become the enemy. It's a theme we actually see in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus' parents fled to Egypt, Matthew implies that Judea, where Herod is killing infants, that has become the new Egypt. And the situation here, some 50 years later or more, it's gotten worse. 
And the original Herod may be dead, but now the general population has rejected God. They have rejected Paul and his gospel. They have taken God's good work among the Gentiles and called it a crime. It's exactly how Jesus defined blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, calling his holy works evil. So Jerusalem has become a dark place, even though on the outside it's still white and gleaming. The inside is ugly and rotting. So how can we conclude our thoughts on this? I think at the end of the day we can say God is winning, right? God still wins. The gospel still goes forth. Paul's mission continues. He just has a new sponsor, the Roman Empire. Rome has essentially become his missions agency. They are unwittingly providing free, maximum security transportation for Paul and a direct route to exactly where he wanted to go in the first place. Any missionary will tell you that fundraising is a big part of the battle. Paul knew that. He had to work everywhere he went just to pay the bills. And yet, God has provided him a fully funded trip to the largest city in the empire, all expenses paid, just so that he can focus exclusively on evangelism. As the PCA puts it, he's been relieved of his worldly concerns. (laughs) So the point of this story is not that whitewashed religion will slow down the gospel. It clearly doesn't do that. God's plans move forward regardless of the pretensions of men. And I think in that sense, this story is very encouraging for believers because the gospel is still true and because the conspiracies of the world don't scare God. He puts his people exactly where he wants them and he does it in his own way and in his own time. And once again, Paul says very little in this passage. Yet God takes him from a prison in Jerusalem to a cozy bedroom in the governor's mansion with bodyguards at his door. As the psalmist put it a thousand years earlier, this is God preparing a table for Paul in the presence of his enemies. That is something to take comfort in as believers because God's word is still true and he still watches over his people. But this passage is also a warning against whitewashed religion. And I keep bringing this up because people who practice whitewashed religion have a hard time seeing it because they live behind a lie so effectively that I think they come to believe it themselves. I think it's possible to live your entire life sincerely believing yourself to be pious and dedicated and holy while underneath you're crumbling and ugly as homemade soap. I don't think the conspirators in Jerusalem saw themselves as the bad guys. People who are convinced that they are doing something wrong don't typically go to their religious leaders to ask for help, do they? I have yet to have any one of you drop in on a session meeting asking for drug money. Not yet. The thing is, you can't tell by looking whether someone is whitewashed or washed in the blood. And even those of us who are believers are good at whitewashing sometimes, aren't we? I know that's true because I do it. And I know some of you well enough to know that I've seen you doing it. But beloved, whitewashing is antithetical to the gospel. There's no room for a holy facade if your righteousness comes entirely from Christ. And from his finished work, that's not how we're called to live. I think one way that you can identify whitewashing tendencies in yourself is anger and rage. It's a characteristic of false piety. Because if even one piece of the whitewash crumbles off, it's typically a sign of a bigger problem. And when a facade cracks, the whole thing is exposed to the light. Whitewashed religion is often angry. 
This morning, I, I went to Panera to pick up the bread because I had to cheat this morning. Alyssa wasn't around to bake yesterday. And I get in there, and, and the gal who was waiting on me got angry at her new co-worker and was being rather unkind to her, and then she was yelling at another co-worker because the other co-worker dropped something or something, and she swore. She said, hey, watch your language, and turns to me and says, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Forgive us, Father. Her anger was driven by the need to maintain her appearance, to have it all together, especially to impress the priest that was standing there, right? And that's why Ananias and these 40 other conspirators got violent. The gospel is exposing their self-righteousness. It's attacking their idol, and it's hitting him where it hurts the most, in their pride. But the gospel of Jesus Christ means nothing unless it means everything. And by that I mean that you bring nothing, and especially not your holiness, to the table. There is nothing to defend. Jesus brings it all. There's nothing to conspire about. We are broken, wicked, and lost apart from Christ. The people of Jerusalem could not accept that. But Paul knew it. So I guess in closing, I'll say, be like Paul. Believe the gospel, be at peace, and know that God will take care of things and he will take care of you. And let the enemies of God put on a whitewashed front. Because it's better to be broken with Christ than to have it together without him. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for protecting Paul, Lord. We thank you that you really do lift up the humble. Lord, we thank you that you break apart the whitewash, that you let the walls crumble and expose us, Lord, for the express purpose of purifying us, Lord, and forcing us to admit that we can't hold it together ourselves. We need a complete makeover. We need to be deconstructed. We need to be new creations. There's nothing we can contribute. There's nothing we can do. Lord, keep us from anger. Lord, I pray for those of us who need to be broken and reminded of how much we depend on you, that you would do so, Lord. And also among us that are humble, that you would, that are truly humble, that you would lift us up, Lord. Help us to trust that you are good. We pray these things. In Christ's name, amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.